Hello and welcome to session 12 of the recovery course. And tonight's talk is called Not So Bad After All. And we're going to be looking at step nine, which says this. We made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And with that, I've put a verse from Matthew. They're words of Jesus, and Jesus says this. If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. Let's review very quickly what we've achieved so far and where we are now. So far on this course, in the first seven steps, we've been doing restoration work on our own individual lives. We started our recovery by admitting our powerlessness, and we looked at that whole area of denial in step one. We then got to step three, where we were encouraged to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And then in steps four and five, we did a moral inventory, highlighting our entrenched long-standing resentments uh, and all those areas of shame in our life that we've buried away. And then in step five, we were encouraged to share and confess these things to God and also to another person we trust. And then in steps six and seven, which I have to admit are my favorite steps, we began identifying our main character faults and we then humbly asked God to begin removing them. I'd like to say at this point, some of us may be getting a little hysterical by now because this is a lot of examination, isn't it, of our of our lives and our inner character and those areas of our life that we find very difficult to look at. So I would just very strongly encourage you to take everything slowly and steadily. I've always said to folk on these courses, if you get through this course and you only manage to really nail step one, those areas of denial, listening to that voice in our heads, telling us that it's a good idea to do something that in our hearts we know is not a good idea. If you can nail step one, you've done great. If you can take on board step two and step three, where we turn our will and our life over to the care of God, you're doing brilliantly. So if you feel as though, oh crumbs, I can't cope with all these latest steps, I haven't even got to grips with the earlier ones, that's fine. Put what I'm saying up on a shelf, leave it there, bring it down in due course, just concentrate on those earlier steps and really try and nail those first three. Up until step seven, the 12-step program essentially has been all about me, us. And then last week, as we began looking at step eight, we started to restore our relationship with others. We began this journey by making a list of all those people that we've harmed and became willing to make amends to them without expecting anything back in return. And one of the hallmarks, I think, of someone who has an addictive personality is 
poor self-esteem. By and large, we have a low opinion of ourselves. The way we think about ourselves is usually formed in early childhood. It uh, comes through verbal and non-verbal messages from significant people in our lives. Uh, they may be people like parents, teachers, siblings and peers. Verbal messages that can scar us are phrases such as, you're not as pretty as your sister, you're clumsy, you really are stupid at times, we didn't mean to have you, you were a mistake, you're so lazy, you'll never amount to anything, we really wanted a boy, can't you do anything right? And then sometimes we're offered a faulty worldview. The world is your oyster. Anything you put your mind to, you can do. I mean, it's a very encouraging statement, that. But it is so patently untrue. We can't do anything we put our mind to. And so when we fail, we take that on board. Low self-worth, self-hatred. Anyone else could do it, but I can't. Sometimes we, we hear lines like, life is crap and then you die. Ultimate defeatism, really, isn't it? And when we consciously, or when we unconsciously, accept these as truisms, is it any wonder that we are messed up? One phrase I was routinely subjected to as a child was, it's no use being sorry. And that actually leaves all possibilities of redemption and starting again clearly out of reach. And not just on a human level, because I think if parents are in some way modelling God's relationship with us, then we mistakenly think his response to us is also, it's no use being sorry. And the hallmark of my life has been condemnation. Another phrase that um, often is used between adults and children was those who ask don't get, those who don't ask don't want. And that's a no-win situation if ever there was one. And the message is clearly, whatever you do, you can't win. And we sometimes wonder why our lives have the indelible mark of defeat about them. One false belief about addicts that is widely held in society is that we don't have much of a conscience. I mean, after all, if we had a conscience, how could we continue to do the things we do that hurt our families and friends so much? And this view is reinforced by the ways in which we, as addicts, behave. If you're anything like me, we have a poor opinion of ourselves, and as a means of defence, we often counteract that by developing an inflated ego. We sort of put on this mask that gives the signal that we have a high opinion of ourselves, even though nothing could be further from the truth. And those of us in active addiction, by and large, 
have a perfectly good conscience, which is actually what is so tragic about our lives, because our addiction drives us to do things that are in opposition to the things we hold most dear. And the consequences are circular and increasingly destructive. I am full of guilt, fear and shame, and so I use to blot out the pain. And I then feel even more guilty, more fearful, more shameful, and so it goes on. One verse in the Bible that I always had enormous difficulty with um, is where Jesus says to us, love your neighbour as yourself. And I think the problem for many of us is that we tend to hate our neighbour as we hate ourselves. So what is the answer to this problem? What is the solution? Well, fortunately, it is actually quite simple. Stop doing the things that make you feel bad about yourself and start doing some things that make you feel good about yourself. Not rocket science, is it? By practicing the steps on this program, our self-esteem begins to grow, and particularly when we start tackling this step, step nine. First and foremost, step nine is about trying to put right the things that we inflicted on others. But a major byproduct in doing this is that we start to become the people that deep down we have always wanted to be. As long as we dislike ourselves, the pressure to numb the guilt, the fear and the shame by using will always be there. But as we do good things, the accumulative effect is that we begin to feel a lot better about ourselves and the pressure to use decreases. When I feel good about myself, I don't want to use. When I feel bad about myself, I want to use in the mistaken thought that it'll make me feel better. And of course it does, for 10 seconds. At the end of 2007, I fell out with my best and closest friend. It was an extremely silly misunderstanding. But as with all these things, resentment, rejection and anger has a habit of taking on a life of its own. And despite my tentative efforts to make things right, we went our separate ways and no longer kept in touch. And then six months later, I began thinking a lot about him. Uh, he lived on his own, he had no other companions, and we had stuck together through thick and thin for over 30 years. We actually worked alongside one another for over 10 years in my previous job. He would sit right opposite me, and I would see him every day, and I would share stuff with him that I wouldn't share with another person. And he would always have some kind of wise response that would help me get through that difficult patch. Anyway, six, six months on from our little um, tiff, I began thinking about going and knocking on his door and trying to make thing, things right. And I procrastinated for the next fortnight about this because 
I feared he might actually reject my advances to make up. And as someone who is crippled by low self-esteem, I actually wanted to muster up the courage to take the risk. And I remember I was going into work on the train and I was thinking, tomorrow I'm going to go and knock on his door. And when I got home, the news had come through that he killed himself. Now, when death comes, it is bad enough when a relationship is happy and sound. But when it happens while a relationship is fractured, it can actually verge on the intolerable. I'd like to finish tonight with a quote by the poet and author, Stephen Levine. And he said this, it's a question, which is a question you will discuss in your groups. If you were going to die soon and had only one phone call you could make, who would you call and what would you say? And why are you waiting?